Hey, welcome. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad that you guys are here. What a beautiful morning out there that we have as we start into the month of December. Christmas is coming up. You guys excited about that? Hey, anybody else know what else is significant about today? Today's the first day of Advent. Today's the first day of Advent. Advent is, it's kind of changed in its meaning over the years, but it's essentially four weekends or four Sundays worth of just celebrating the coming of our Savior, Jesus. And so since we serve such an awesome God that creates all of this and blesses us with all this and shares his word with us, what a, what a better time just to take the month and just, and just focus on that. And so next weekend, uh, we actually begin our series of prophecy. So we're going to talk about Old Testament prophecy relating to a coming Messiah, and we're going to teach about that. The other good thing, I mean, that's a good thing, right? I I hope that's going to be fun. I'm excited about it. But here's the other thing. We get to take a deep breath and relax just a little bit because we've been going through Acts for the past uh, 13 weeks now, and we have been going at light speed. So if you're new here... Or if you haven't come in a while, I want to just warn you that this is the conclusion of our series in Acts, and there's a lot to cover. And so we kind of travel at light speed, but I kind of, I, I try to make it relatable, right? I want you to understand what's going on and the point of it all while still making sure that we, that we do justice to, to the Word, because there's so much richness in there that it's easy to overlook a lot of the things. And so as we've been going through Acts, you know, it starts up chapter 1. Starts out with Jesus talking to his disciples, and he tells them that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He's, he's giving them this premonition that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them. And the reason, he says in the very next statement, so that you can be his witnesses throughout all the world. And so that's the whole point. Really, if you boil the entire book of Acts down to a point, and you had to point at one thing, that's what it would be. The Holy Spirit has come upon us so that we can go be his witnesses throughout the world. And so as we teach through the book of Acts, we spend a lot of time focusing, especially lately, on Paul's various journeys. Okay, we talk about Stephen being stoned. We talk about uh, Philip going out and sharing the word with the Gentiles. And we talk about the conversion of Saul and the persecution of the church and these sorts of things. But then we kind of settle into a pattern where, we're, where we've been for the last several weeks talking about Paul and his various missionary journeys. And so as we wrap up the series today, I want you to start thinking, like, as, as I'm talking through all the things, and there's a lot that goes on with Paul here in the, in the message today, but as I do that, start thinking about why you know, what's, what's really the point? Okay, the point is to share the word throughout the world. But when you look at Paul, why the focus on his journeys and all the things he went through? And I think that's to remind us. Because we see Paul starting out in kind of an unlikely position, right? As being antagonistic and downright evil to the Christians. But he is so zealous for his beliefs. He is very zealous in his beliefs. And he will stop at nothing for what he thinks that that is right for him to do. But then when he has his experience with Jesus and he comes to know Jesus, he receives a new calling. And that calling is to share the word of him with the Gentiles. This thing that has been a a Jewish thing all along, the Jews have, have jealously protected their thing and their God and their religion. Um, they have a hard time with anything that wants to upset that apple cart, kind of upset their, 
their life and their way of doing things. But Paul is uniquely equipped to do what he's called to do because he's strong in character. He's kind of bullheaded sometimes. He's very, very zealous. He's educated. He's a Roman citizen. He has all these attributes that if you look at all those and then the mission that he was called to do, he is uniquely equipped to accomplish that mission. So think about that as we go through. How are you uniquely equipped to accomplish what God has called you to do? Okay? And our mission is the same as Paul's, to go out into the world and share the knowledge of who Jesus is. So we all have that. That's all of our purposes. That's why we're here. Because the word says as soon as everyone has had a chance to hear about who Jesus is, okay, then the kingdom is consummated, Jesus returns, we're, we're, everything is great from that point on, right? But we have a job to do until that point. We have to share the knowledge of Jesus. And so I want you to think about how are you equipped? And then look at Paul, how Paul didn't wait for the perfect moment and the perfect time. Okay, I know I've been guilty of this, thinking I should share Jesus with this, with this coworker or with this person at the grocery store, or that, but I'm going to wait for the right time. I want to tell the clerk at the grocery store about how Jesus has changed my life, but uh, there's a line behind me, and I don't want to upset those people in line, so I'll come back another time when there's not a line. So I'm just waiting for the right moment. And then how also how Paul doesn't see persecution and trials and difficulty. He doesn't see that as a deterrent to his ministry. He actually sees that as confirmation that he's on the right track. And I would urge you to do the same. When you start feeling a little pushback, know that you're on the right track. Know that you're going somewhere where the Lord wants you to go because Jesus promises us several things, but one thing that he does promise us is it's not going to be easy. Not that we should go looking for those difficult situations. I don't think anybody wants that to be difficult. But when you see that and you see that resistance, let it just solidify in your heart that you're where you need to be. Okay? So look for those kind of common themes as we travel with Paul through all these various things that goes on today. So if you remember, or if you weren't here, I'll just recap. At the end of last week, it was the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Okay? He's traveling all over and a lot of really interesting and fun things happened there, okay, just in a nutshell. But where we find ourselves now is that he has come back to Jerusalem, okay? It's been a, it's been a fantastic trip. He has spread the gospel all over. There have been a million amazing things that happened. And he comes back to Jerusalem, and he's in a place now where he's, he's basically reporting back to the home church, Okay, he walks in the doors, and there is a joyous reception. So let's start out with the very first scripture that we have here, which is, <laughs> after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Let me stop right there really quick. Just a couple clues. After we arrived, went in with us. Okay, that's first person. Who wrote Acts? Luke wrote Acts, right? So that's just a little clue that Luke is there with him now, okay? Paul went in with us to James. James is the brother of Jesus, okay? Also the head of the Jerusalem church. Now, if you remember several weeks ago, e even as long ago as that was, in real time, it was years ago, the Jerusalem church was over 20,000 people and still growing. 
This is a giant church, and James is the head of that church. So Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He's telling them of all the, all the fantastic things that have happened, the conversions, and the, he's telling them of the resistance and the ways that God helped him overcome. And this is an exciting thing for them. They're hearing him, and they're saying, this is, this is fantastic. This is exactly what we are called to do. So the, war, the welcome, besides the fact that he has been up to this point when he got in Jerusalem, every stop along the way, if you remember, he was being warned. This isn't going to work out well. Things are going to turn out bad for you. Don't go. Please don't go. It's not going to be good. He knows he's called to go anyway, so he goes. And he arrives to this kind of a welcome. It's, it's a warm welcome. It's, it's not at all what he had expected, maybe. Walking into town, he expected to be arrested at the gates. I don't know. But he didn't think it was going to be this good. So that's where we are, okay? So the problem, though, is... James, being Jesus' brother and being the head of this Jerusalem church, he's got a lot of factors to consider. Okay, it's one thing just to say, that's wonderful. We know you were called to share the gospel with the Gentiles, and some of the Jews were having a problem with it, but he could have said, but hey, that, that's on them. Okay, our mission is to share the gospel, and let's just do it. But like any good pastor or leader of a church, he has to balance where everybody is. Everybody in his congregation. He doesn't want to aggravate or alienate half of his congregation by just ignoring their feelings and where they are. And, and James is in this exact place. And he says this. I'll read it to you. This is Acts 21, 20 to 22. There are several scriptures I'm just going to read to you today for the interests of time. But Acts 20, 21 to 22. And when they heard it, this is, this is Paul relaying what's going on, they began glorifying God. Okay, so they're thrilled. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they're zealous for the law. Meaning, see our congregation? There are thousands of Jews who are zealous for the law still, but they've come to know Jesus as the Messiah. They're here. And they've all been told about you, that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So James is saying, if, if you walk out into, into those people, there's a significant chunk of them that are going to have a problem with you. And that might derail their growth. It might start causing a problem in my church. And we can't have division. First and foremost, we can't have division within the church. So what do we do? This is exactly where he is. Now, he's not saying, Paul, you've been doing something wrong. Okay? What he's been teaching about circumcision and the, and the law and these things is exactly what they had agreed upon as a church weeks, months, years before. Okay? They had agreed at the Jerusalem Council they were going to teach these things. And that's what Paul's been doing. So he's not being chastised for doing something wrong. They're simply recognizing that this could be a problem. Okay, so they come up with an idea. They come up with an idea. James does. What he decides is that it would be good for Paul to publicly engage in some, in some Jewish tradition, some Jewish culture. And he sees a perfect opportunity for this coming up. Perfect opportunity. It's in Acts 21, 23 and 24. 
It says, therefore, this is James speaking to Paul. He goes, therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there's nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Okay, these four men that are under a vow, these men are under what's called a Nazarite vow. Okay, Nazarite vow goes all the way back to numbers in the Old Testament, okay? Goes all the way back to there. A Nazarite vow consists of a lot of things, but primarily, first and foremost, actually, it's voluntary, okay? You decide that you're going to do this. It is also a finite time frame. You decide, I'm going to take this vow, and I'm going to do it for a certain amount of time. You decide what that time is. But the way typically that it looks is, is somewhat uniform. You don't cut your hair. Men and women, by the way, took Nazarite vows. You don't cut your hair. You abstain from alcohol. You abstain from wine. Even grapes, raisins, things like that. You stay completely away from those things. Um, there are some other things that you do. You, you go to the temple and you do these sorts of things. But, but primarily, it's a, it's a voluntary time of focusing on God primarily to help you through a specific instance. You know there's difficulty coming up, so you're going to take this vow of focusing on God, staying away from those things, really focus. It's kind of like a fast, but a little bit different than that. And so Paul decides that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. Now, is he being hypocritical? Because he's been preaching against all just that religion and all those things. Is he being hypocritical by saying, Okay, this is a good idea. I'll, I'll make a show of taking this vow along with these four men. Or is he being genuine? I want to point you back to a scripture. I didn't cover this, but it, it was just a one sentence. Back in Acts 18, 18, I believe it is, Paul is traveling through on one of his journeys. He's traveling through the area around Ephesus and, and uh, Asia Minor. And there's just one little line that says, and Paul stopped to cut his hair, for he had taken a vow. Okay, it's just a little reference. Now, they didn't make a big deal about it because it wasn't something to be proud of and to show off, I'm doing this. It's something that, that was very private that you did. And that's what Paul was doing. So Paul was still adhering to those Jewish customs and, and adhering to those things. So to do it publicly now, the timing may be a little bit calculated, but it wasn't a hypocritical thing that he was doing because he had been doing these sorts of things all along. But James says, if you do this, they'll see you partaking in this. So he does this. These four gentlemen and Paul, they decide to do it. And Paul just jumps in with them. Now, this vow typically, in, in this case, this period was about seven days where there was a purification period. So at the end of your vow, you would go through this purification period. You would go to the temple. You would ceremoniously, ceremonially uh, make sacrifices. One of the things you would do is you would go ahead and cut your hair, which is why he's saying, why don't you go ahead and pay for their haircuts? Okay, seems like a simple thing. Pay for their haircuts. You take the hair and you burn it ceremoniously. Okay, That's, that is uh, part of this ritual. So he's saying, go ahead and do this. People will see you doing this, and they'll accept that you're not out to just abolish all Jewish culture and custom, okay? They'll see that, and, it, and it's working, okay? Paul's going through the steps. He's on one of the very last days of the purification process. He's actually in the temple, and then like always happens with Paul, something happens to blow it up for him, right? 
always happens. What happens is in the next scripture. I think I've got it right here. Acts 21, 27. I've got it on the screen. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him. They began to stir up the crowd. The Jews from Asia are actually Jews from Ephesus. Okay, they're Jews from Ephesus who came down to Jerusalem. Remember at the end of the last journey, Paul was trying to hurry back to Jerusalem so that he could be there for the feast, for the festival celebration. Okay, and these Jews are no different. They're, they come from all over the place into Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is, is all kinds of people are coming in at this time. And these, these Jews from Ephesus, they know who Paul is. They saw Paul up there. They knew what he did up there. They knew what he preached and taught up there. And they bump into him down here at the temple. One other thing that they do is as these Jews from Asia are walking around Jerusalem, they run into another man. This man's name is Trophimus. Trophimus is just a traveling companion, a good friend of Paul's. But Trophimus is a Greek. Okay, a Gentile. He's a Greek. And so he was traveling him through. And they see Trophimus there. And they see Paul hanging out with Trophimus. They see Paul in the temple. And in their minds, they put two and two together and accuse Paul of bringing Trophimus into the temple. Now, this is a problem. Because if you remember way back, I had taught that the temple was actually separated. The court for the temple separated into two areas. One where only Jews went and another smaller area where Gentiles were allowed to go. Okay? But they saw Paul in the Jewish side, and they made the assumption, falsely, that Trophimus had been in there with him. This is important to know, because they immediately begin to throw a fit. In fact, what they do is they literally grab Paul and drag him out of the temple into the streets. They want to kill him. That's their goal. And they can kill him. Remember I told you that the, the Jewish uh, citizens had very little power to dispense justice. It was actually the Roman government that had that kind of power. This, though, bringing a Gentile into the temple courts was one area where the Roman government had given the Jews permission to dispense their own justice. So they were actually allowed. They could have drug him out, and they planned to drag him out into the streets and stone him to death. That was their plan. That's what they were going to do. But thankfully, Jerusalem, being, being a busy time of year, being also a Roman garrison was stationed there, they had lookouts. The, Roman, the Romans had lookouts around town, little outposts, and those outposts were looking for hot spots, looking for problems, looking for anything. Because remember, they were primarily there as peacekeepers. They just wanted things to be calm. We don't want any trouble. And so one of these Roman outposts, they see this disturbance down in the street. And they, they have no idea what's going on. They just know, looks like a riot. Looks like somebody's about to be stoned. So they hurry down there. We need to go down and find out what's going on, either to stop it or to let them go if they're in the right. So this garrison, they run down there and the commander runs down there too. As soon as they arrive, the Jews see this, this, these Roman soldiers coming down and the commander of the Roman soldiers, and they stop. They stop being Paul. They back up. The commander walks up, and he says, okay, tell me what's going on. I need to know what's going on. Probably not that calmly, 
But he asks him what's going on. Acts 21, 34 says this, but among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some the other. Remember that from another time where they're shouting, they don't even know, they're just all shouting. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So in other words, he's asking the, the mob there, what's happening, what's going on here? They're yelling over each other and they're yelling all kinds of different things. The commander says, I have no idea what's going on here. So I'm going to take Paul into protective custody and I'm going to pull him into the barracks just to protect him while we figure out what's going on. That's important because had the Jews just been a little bit calmer or had a spokesman who could speak for them and they said, we are stoning this man because he brought a Gentile into the temple courts. Okay, right or wrong, with that accusation, the commander would have said, okay, that's the one thing that you're allowed to dispense justice yourself. Had they done that in one accord, rather than just being an unruly mob, they could have had their way. But they didn't, and the commander sees that. So he pulls him in, he pulls him into the garrison to protect him. Now they're walking all back. The mob is following the small guard detachment. They're following them back to the garrison. They get to the steps. They're about to go in. And Paul turns to the commander. And he actually speaks to him in Greek. He speaks to him in Greek, which really surprises the commander because the commander had no idea who Paul was. In fact, he thought that Paul was this terrorist that had been, he just made this assumption. We have no idea why, but he thought that Paul was this terrorist called the Egyptian. He was an insurgent who had been hanging out in the Jerusalem area years before and had actually escaped. Okay, so for some reason, he made the assumption that that's who Paul was and that he had been caught. But when Paul turns to him and speaks in Greek, it, it takes him aback. And he says, I, I thought you were somebody else. So I, I, now I really don't know what's going on. Well, Paul asks for permission. He says, can I address the crowd? Do you mind if I address the crowd? The commander is probably a little stunned. And he says, uh, sure. You want to talk to the crowd? Sure. So Paul turns around to this crowd that, that was trying to kill him. And he speaks to them in their language now. Again, they're like, oh, stop. He speaks to them in their language. And what he does is rather than just to say, you guys are wrong, nah, 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 and go back inside, okay? <laughs> he takes that moment, as Paul always does. And he says, I'm going to share my testimony with these people. And he goes all the way back to the very beginning of how he was born in Tarsus and how he was sent to Jerusalem for schooling and how he stuttered under the rabbi Gamaliel, okay, which they would have immediately known who that was. Gamaliel was a, was a big deal. He talked about how he had zealously persecuted the Christians, how he was there when Stephen got stoned. He talks about meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. He talks about losing his sight, about being healed of his sight, and about receiving his calling from Jesus then, and then his going out into the world to accomplish the mission. Now, as he's doing this, the Jewish crowd, they're, they're, starting to, they're starting to come around a little bit. They're calming down just a little, and they're listening to him, and they're saying, okay, we had no idea that's, that's who this guy was. 
Remember, the original accusers that started this whole thing was just this little group of guys from, from somewhere else. Nobody knew who they were, or even if they were still around, or if they took off. We don't really know. But Paul's doing this, and they're coming around, and then he gets to the good part. He gets to this part, Acts twenty two twenty one. He finalizes, and he said to me, he's talking about Jesus, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now that word, just that phrase alone, sends the crowd back into a frenzy. We were on board with you while you shared all this stuff. It sounded wonderful. We were there with you. But the Gentiles? No way. Can't have it. This is our thing. The coming Messiah was our thing. We're not sure we agree with you that Jesus is the Messiah, but we know one's coming, and that's not for the Gentiles. That's just ours. And so even the thought that he would go share anything with the Gentiles threw them back into a frenzy again. They're going crazy. They are so out of control and so unruly that even with the guards around, the commander goes, I got to pull this guy inside. They're, they're just going to grab him and tear him apart. And the last thing I want to do is have my soldiers be killing Jewish citizens in their own capital just because they're unruly. So being discretionary, he's going to just pull Paul inside. Now, he, he pulls Paul inside for his own protection. And the way that he decides he's going to get to the bottom of this, because he's still, he's still got to know what's going on, right? So he decides he's going to have Paul flogged. For his own protection. So he proceeds to interrogate Paul, or at least to prepare to interrogate Paul. And then something interesting happens. It's Acts 22, 25 to 28. But when they stretched him out with thongs, okay, so they're literally tying him out, spread eagle, so that they can beat him. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Uh-oh. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. Uh-oh. Now I was just getting ready to beat a Roman citizen. That's... Illegal. He could get in a lot of trouble for doing that. Now he's got to backpedal fast. The commander says this. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. Okay, I mean, you couldn't buy, you weren't supposed to buy Roman citizenship. But you could find corrupt officials who would take your money and issue you Roman citizenship. And that's what this commander had done. His name is Lysias. He had actually bought his Roman citizenship. And Paul replies, but I was actually born a citizen. So now Lysias has got a real problem. What do I do with this guy? I still need to figure out, I still don't know what's going on or why this all happened. I still need to figure that out, but now I got to tread lightly because I could be in trouble with this Roman citizen if I'm not in the right here. So what he decides he's going to do, he calls the chief priest and he says, I need you to get your council together right now, emergency session. Let's get together and find out what's going on here. Okay, so he goes to the chief priest. They call together their emergency session and they show up. The guards, uh, the commander and some guards, they surround Paul and they take him down to the council. Okay, we're going to protect him while we find out what's going on. 
Paul walks into the council, and, the, and they say, okay, let's hear what you have to say. Paul starts to plead his case to the council. Immediately, Ananias, who is the chief priest, he orders the guards that are standing next to Paul to slap him. So Paul doesn't get a word out of his mouth, and he's slapped across the face. Paul, being Paul, can't exactly control his anger at this point. Okay? He was there to plead his case lawfully, and this happens. Paul lashes out at them. We've got it here. Acts 23.3. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Okay, that probably loses some translation. We don't <laughs> call people whitewashed walls anymore, but back then, that was a burn. You burn. <laughs> he says, do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Ugh. So, one of the bystanders points out to Paul, he says, hey, you can't speak to the high priest like that. And remember, this was a hasty meeting, an emergency meeting that was called together. The high priest was probably just in his pajamas, or I don't know, but he wasn't, he wasn't wearing all of his priestly robes. But one interesting thing that Paul does is being told that this is the high priest, he apologizes. He says, I am to submit to leadership, and you've been placed in a position of leadership I apologize to you. Not in those words, but he, he apologized to them. But he also sees that the deck is heavily stacked against him. He's not going to get a fair word here. Okay? He, they might allow him to speak, maybe, but it's not going to turn out right. So he's over in his mind. He's thinking, what do I do? He's praying about it. Holy Spirit, show me what, what do I need to do. And he comes up with the most clever solution. He's looking around the room. Remember, just picture you guys are the council, okay? And the council is made up of all kinds of different Jews, but with different backgrounds. Some are Pharisees, some are Sadducees. There are all kinds of different backgrounds. Now, Paul grew up and was raised, and he was a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees and Sadducees, they tolerate each other, kind of like Republicans and Democrats. We can be in the same room but we really don't talk about it that much if we want to keep the peace, right? That's kind of the way it was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Paul realizes half this room I can get to turn to my side. So here's what he does. Acts 20, 23, 6 to 7. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Now, this is important because Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Okay? They believed in that. Sadducees clearly did not. It was one of those things that you just don't talk about in a room together if you want to keep the peace. But Paul brings it up. Now, this is one of those situations where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Okay, so even though they wanted to tear Paul apart and stone him a few minutes ago, now they're like, well, he's one of us, and at least he's bad, but he's better than them who don't believe in resurrection, or the other way around, who does believe in resurrection. So they start fighting with each other. And they are so, again, so out of control that the guard, the commander says, I got to take this guy out of here again. So he and the, and the guards, they leave and they go back to the garrison 
and they lock Paul up for the night. He's got to let the, cal- the crowd calm down and figure out what's going on here. They lock Paul up for the night. In the middle of the night, something interesting happens with Paul. Jesus visits him. Acts 23, 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Paul takes a few things from this. He does take courage from this because he knows my Lord and Savior has told me that I need to go to Rome. So therefore, all these things that are going on and anything that's going to happen on the way, I've been told I'm going to Rome. So he knows that's where he's going to end up. So he takes great courage from that because anything that comes his way is just incidental to what his mission is. He is now singularly focused on getting to Rome. So this is what's happened also in the middle of the night. While this is going on, the Jews get together, and they they are so tired of Paul and all his stuff. So they start plotting a way that they're going to lure Paul out of the garrison, and they're going to kill him. The problem is, problem for them, good for Paul, Paul's nephew is there, and he overhears this plot. Paul's nephew runs back to the garrison. He gets the commander and he says, look, the Jews are going to kill Paul as soon as you let him out of the garrison. So again, the commander, he probably doesn't care two bits about Paul, but he wants to keep the peace. And he knows this is going to be a problem. So he says, okay, I've got, I have to do something with this guy. He's, he's trouble for everybody around. So the commander decides, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move Paul to Caesarea. I'm going to take him to the provincial capital, which is in Caesarea. He'll be safe there. So he takes him out the next morning, and he takes, Scripture says, 500 soldiers. He's taking no chances. 500 soldiers, he takes Paul, and they move to Caesarea. Okay, that's where they are. He sends him along with a note, and the note reads this. It's from the commander, Claudius Lysias, to the governor there in Caesarea. Acts 23, 26 to 30. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. He's painting himself in a pretty good light here in case it ever comes up that he almost beat him to death too. (laughs) And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. Basically, he's saying, I I think he's innocent. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. Meaning, let's do this right. Go Go to the provincial capital and we'll have an actual trial with witnesses and everything, and we'll do this the right way. So he meets there, and this governor is Governor Felix. He's the, he's the governor of, this, of the province there, and his capital's in Caesarea. That's where he is. So here we are, Acts 24, verse 1. It says, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down. Okay, so they sent to get them. They come down. Came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus. And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. Okay, now this had to be hasty. It's five days. So in five days, they had to send a runner from Caesarea to Jerusalem to get them, gather them together, get the attorney, prepare their case, and walk back to Caesarea. 
So this had to be a hasty defense. This wasn't some well-planned-out thing. They were just going to do the best they could on the way, right? And they accused Paul of dissension. They accused Paul of desecrating the temple. These are the things that they accuse Paul of. Okay, Governor Felix now turns to Paul, and he says, all right, your turn. What do you have to say? Paul immediately looks around, and he says, um, well, first of all, I'm going to refute all these charges, and he does. But then he says, where are my accusers? And his accusers were not the high priest and, his, and the elders. The accusers, the ones who supposedly witnessed this problem, were these guys from Ephesus. They were nowhere to be found. So by Roman law, it's not just the Wild West. By Roman law, they say, hey, if I don't have accusers, I can't do anything here. But Governor Felix wants nothing more than to keep the peace with the Jews. If he just kicks Paul loose, they're going to be angry and there's going to be a problem. He, he knows they can be temperamental, right? We've seen that. And he, again, wants nothing more than just to keep the peace. He doesn't care about their little squabble. He just wants to keep the peace. And so he says this. Tell you what, I'm going to hold on to Paul. We're going to send back to Jerusalem for the commander, Claudius Lysias, and see what he can add to this. See if he's got any charges he can bring. We know that's just a waste of time. He's just stalling. And we know that because Claudius Lysias already sent him a letter along with Paul saying, I don't see anything wrong. He didn't do anything. But they were trying to kill him, so I sent him to you. So he's just stalling for time here. And in the meantime, um, Felix and his wife, his wife's name is uh, Drusilla. Felix and his wife, Drusilla, decide, hey, well, the crowd is dispersed and it's just us. Let's go in and see what this Paul has to say. Because we've heard things about him. We know that he's, he's, he's sharing some information that obviously is inflammatory. We want to hear this for ourselves. So they go in, Acts 24, 24 to 27. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla and his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I'll summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him. He wants a bribe. Would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. Just pulling him in, giving him another chance to bribe him so he could let him go. But Paul doesn't want that. But after two years had passed, two years of this, okay, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. couple things about that. Drusilla, Felix's wife, was Felix's third wife. This is why Felix had such a problem when Paul was preaching to him about righteousness, Right? It was his third wife, not only his third wife, but his third wife, quite a bit younger. Uh, Drusilla was 19, okay? Felix was between 50 and 60, depending on how you do the math. Um, and he had actually stolen Drusilla from one of his good friends. So he had a little bit of a problem when they started talking about righteousness and things like this, and that's why he became afraid. He's like, if this is true, I'm kind of in trouble. So I don't want to hear this. So that's where they are. Now... Felix's term as governor was just a two-year term, okay, or, or slightly longer than that. But he, he was basically, his term was up, and so he moved on. A new governor comes in. New governor comes in. This new governor's name is Festus. 
Portius Festus. They call him Festus. So he gets there, and the first thing he's got to do, he looks around in the jails, and he says, hey, I've got a prisoner here. I don't even know what he's here for. Let's figure this out, right? People are rapidly losing any understanding of why Paul is even there to begin with. But he's locked up, so let's find out what's going on. So Festus recalls all the witnesses from Jerusalem. He calls everybody together, and he decides that he's going to get to the bottom of this. He hears both sides, and he actually gives Paul a choice. He says, hey, if you want, you can go back to Jerusalem with these guys and be tried there in their courts, or you can stay here. That's significant in that if he stays there under a Roman tribunal, if he's found guilty, he can be put to death. Okay, under the Jerusalem council, if he's judged guilty there, he can be stoned, he can have a number of things, but they can't, they don't have the authority to put him to death. So basically, it's a plea bargain. Saying, you go back with them, I'm going to make this their problem, because I don't want this problem anymore. And Paul says no. Paul says no. Here I am. Acts 25, 10 to 12. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. And then he does this. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. See, as a Roman citizen, he had that right to appeal his case to the highest court, which is Caesar. Okay? Caesar at this time was actually Emperor Nero, by the way. But So he appeals to him, and they have no choice. He's appealed to him, so therefore we have to go. But here's the problem. In order to send a prisoner to Caesar, okay, Festus had to have a charge to send along with him. He couldn't just send him saying, Caesar, he's your problem now. That'd be a problem for Festus. But he's gotten, he doesn't even know what to tell him the problem is. So he's trying to figure out what the problem is when something interesting happens for him. The king of Judea shows up. Okay, the king of Judea uh, is Agrippa, King Agrippa. And he is just making the rounds to visit his new provincial governors. Okay, and he decides, I'm going to go over to Caesarea, and I'm going to visit Festus and see what's going on there. Festus sees this as a great opportunity. I'm going to bump this problem up the chain. I'm going to bump it up to King, to King Agrippa, get his rubber stamp on it. Now I can send it to Caesar, and I don't have to worry about it. So he calls King Agrippa in, and King Agrippa wants to wants to hear what's going on. Acts 25, 13, now in several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice, that's his wife, arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. Now, King Agrippa, side note, was a really interesting character. Okay? King Agrippa had been appointed by Caesar as king of Judea. Okay? He had been appointed. Now, he had been appointed there because he was an embarrassment to the government in Rome. They didn't want him around, so basically they stuck him. This is how highly the, the Roman government thought of the Jews. We're going to take this guy who's an embarrassment. He's a mess up, and we're going to hide him by making him king of Judea. So they placed him over there. Here's why he was an embarrassment, because the previous Caesar was an interesting character named Caligula. Caligula was a really good friends with Agrippa. They were good friends. Okay, and Then Caligula ends up 
out of office, Nero comes in, and we have this open verbal supporter friend of the previous emperor here. We got to get rid of him. Another reason he was embarrassing is Bernice. Bernice was his wife, Agrippa's wife. Bernice was also Agrippa's sister. Very, very embarrassing for Rome. So they tuck him away over there in Judea where supposedly he's not going to be any problem. That's where we are. So Festus calls Agrippa in and he wants to get this other opinion. And so here where we are, Acts 25, 23, we have it up here. So on the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp, okay, remember he's, he's a mess up, but he, he knows how to put on a parade and look like he's a big deal. So he shows up with his wife's sister, And entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Agrippa then turns to Paul and he says, okay, what do you have to say for yourself? What's going on? What's your case? Paul, rather than just to plead his basic case and hope for clemency and he can get released and be done. Remember, this thing is simmering down. Nobody even knows why he's there anymore. Paul decides, I'm going to preach Jesus to this man. Paul preaches Jesus to Agrippa, to Bernice, and they don't want to hear it. Okay, they're not opposed to him. In fact, they come together and say, this, this man has done nothing wrong. We should actually release him, but now we can't because he's appealed to Caesar, and by our own law, he's got to go to Caesar. But I don't see anything he's done wrong. Now, they don't convert. I'd love to say Agrippa and Bernice, they, they repent and they convert, they convert to Christianity, and they don't, but... They do send Paul on to Rome. That's where Paul's got to be. That's where he's headed. So they put him on a ship. The ship, excuse me, is an ocean traveler. It's not a coastal trawler. It's a big ship. There's almost 300 crew and passengers on this ship. It's a sailboat. And they head out. The only reason they head out now is because the king told them to go now. Normally they wouldn't go because it's in the fall now. Okay, it's after the festival and everything. It's late in the fall, and travel by ship is really bad that time of year. Storms, unfavorable headwinds. It's a sailboat. They can't just motor on in headwinds. If there's a headwind, it's going to double, triple their length of their sail. It's a bad time to go out on a voyage, but they go anyway because the king said to go. So this is where they are. As they go out, they encounter headwinds, rough seas. The ship is being, you know, the the rigging is being torn apart. They're throwing over ballast. They're just trying to stay afloat and survive at this point because it is bad. Headwinds, every time they try to find shelter in an island, the wind changes and they find out that they're getting battered again. Crewmen can't eat. It goes on for two weeks, it says, where it's so bad they can't even eat. So imagine trying to battle your ship through waves and you can't even eat for two weeks. Okay, it's bad for them. And they start becoming discouraged. They decide what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and make Crete. We're going to tr- Crete is an island off of Greece. We're going to try and at least get that far. Okay. Now, Acts 27, 14 through about 42 kind of document the severity of that storm. So read that on your own if you're interested in just some of the things. But it was, suffice it to say it was a terrible storm. Okay, the crew's starting to lose heart. Some of them are talking about just jumping overboard and taking their chances and swimming off. And Paul decides, I need to encourage them. So he encourages them with this. He says this, Acts 27, 23 to 26. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood before me, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. 
And behold, God has granted you all of those who are sailing with you. Meaning not only you, but everybody with you is going to make it through this. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, I believe God that it will turn out as exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. Just gives him that little prophetic vision right there. So we'll get two more weeks of these storms, these terrible storms. They finally, they run aground on a reef. They have no idea where they are. They don't know if they're going the right direction or anything, but they run aground on a reef. The storm is still so bad that the waves are smashing into the back of the ship and the ship starts to be torn apart. Ship is literally disintegrating in front of their eyes. They don't know if land is, is 100 yards off or if the land, if the land is a mile, uh, 100 miles off. They don't know. But they know they can't stay there anymore because the ship's getting torn apart. So the first thing that happens is the soldiers start rounding up the prisoners. They're going to kill them. Because, remember the penalty, if you're a Roman guard and your prisoner escapes, the penalty is you are killed. And not in a nice way. If there's killing in a nice way. You're not killed in a nice way. And so they start rounding up the soldiers. They're going to do that. Acts 27.42. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded those that could swim should, be, should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks, others on various things from the ship. So it happened that they were all brought safely to land. Okay, the land that they made was actually the island of Malta, which is about 60 miles from Italy. So, so close and yet so far at this time of year. They go on shore, they make it to shore, and they come across some natives of that area, friendly natives, okay, they're, they're very friendly, they're giving them shelter and warmth and food and comfort, they're, they're giving them everything they need to survive, these are friendly natives, and one day they're gathering firewood to start a fire, and something extreme, this is all interesting, but here's something more interesting that happens, Acts 28, 3 to 6, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on Paul's hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he's been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They thought this was a divine sign that he was, that he was guilty. <laughs> However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. They start treating him as a god. In fact, they start bringing him, uh, they bring him to a person to heal. This man was bedridden with dysentery. Paul lays hands and heals him. Then they start from all over the island, bringing him their sick. And Paul is healing their sick back and forth. And so for three months, this goes on. Okay, three months until the weather changes, times change, and now they can think about sailing on and continuing their journey. Okay, so this is where they are. They get together, they, uh, they get a ship, an Alexandrian ship that's passing through, and they jump this ship, and they head back to Italy. Now remember, at this point again, after all this has gone on, everybody has completely lost track of what Paul's even there for, other than the fact that he's a prisoner by label, but he's been allowed to roam free. So they send him to Rome, and they place him under house arrest with just one guard. Just one guard, and this guard kind of follows him around. He can leave. He can't leave the city of Rome, but he can go anywhere he wants. He can travel around. He's got to go back to home at night. He's got one guard traveling around with him, 
while they wait for an audience with Caesar, which could take whenever Caesar feels like it, that's when that happens. So they have no idea how long this is going to be. So meantime, Paul decides, okay, I'm going to call together all the Jewish leaders and we're going to talk. So he calls together all the Jewish leaders of Rome. They get together in one room. He starts talking to them and they say, hey, we need, we need to get everybody together. We need to get all the people together and have an audience with you so that we can hear you speak. So they set a date. They all come together in the square. It's a big, giant gathering. And they're receptive to Paul at this point. They don't know much about him. Acts 28, 21, 22 says, They said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. So they're saying, Hey, we, we haven't heard anything bad about you. We don't have a problem with you. Let's hear what you have to say. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect of Christianity, it is known to us that it's spoken against everywhere. Okay, so they know this thing Paul is saying is controversial, but they don't have a problem with him necessarily, so they're open to it. So Paul's preaching to them. He, again, recounts his testimony, and he's sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Some are believing, and some are converting, and others are not. Okay, but Paul... For those who are not, and they start kind of infighting a little bit, and, and he allows them to go. Some of them are starting to leave, and they don't want to listen to him. But he leaves them with this final word. It's a little bit tough to read on the screen, but bear with me. Acts 28, 25 to 28. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. This is the last thing Paul says as they're leaving. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people. And say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart and return. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. We had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Okay, so they hear this, and this is, this is God quoting from Isaiah. Okay, it's Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. And God is telling this to Isaiah, giving him his marching orders, basically. And he's saying, hey, many of these people are not going to hear you. They don't want to hear you. They're not going to hear you. But my mission for you is that you tell them anyway. And Isaiah accepts that mission gladly. And that's the same mission that Paul has. He knows that many are going to reject him. Many are going to persecute him. But he knows that God has called him to share the good news of Jesus anyway. And so he's going to go and do it. And an interesting thing about that, that section in Isaiah, uh, verse, I think it's chapter 6, verse 9, it starts out with Isaiah saying this. Some of you have heard this part before. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said to them, Here I am, send me. Okay, so he knows full well that many are going to reject him, that he's going to be persecuted, and he says, Send me, I'm here. He is faithful to the calling of the Lord, and he's not, he's not expecting fruit, and frankly, he doesn't care about fruit really at this point. All he knows is that God has sent him, and he's going to answer that call. And he's going to fulfill his mission. So after Paul stays under house arrest for two whole years in Rome, everybody completely forgets about him. 
okay, including the witnesses who were supposed to come in. It doesn't document, Luke doesn't document the ending of this, but we know he's never tried. Nothing ever happens. Ultimately, he's just released from Rome after two years. The witnesses don't show up. They've got nothing to charge him with, so they just let him go. We do know, since Jesus himself told him you were going to go see Caesar, that he did meet with him at some point, but we don't know. The outcome of that was probably just case dismissed. Okay, so that's where we are. This time in Rome, during this house arrest, Paul wrote the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So in those two years, he was very productive, and he wrote those for their letters. Uh, Luke also obviously wrote Acts while he was there. Luke was waiting for Paul's trial, and he wrote Acts there. So a lot happened right there. But we do know in the very last part of the book of Acts, it says that Paul preached the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ unhindered. Okay? So he was allowed to roam free and to preach, preach Jesus. So that's how the book ends. But let's go back to the very beginning. Why? Why did this even happen, right? Why this particular segment? And I think we have to go back to the one section. Um, again, Acts 28, 25 to 28. I won't read the whole thing, but you can put it up on screen. It's where he's been given his marching orders. Okay, he's been, he's been told that these people, their hearts are going to be hardened to you. But I want you to go anyway. And Paul answers that call just as Isaiah did hundreds of years before. So why would Paul quote Isaiah to them in this instance? In order to do that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus saying, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Okay, that's the point of the entire book of Acts. So everything that happens to Paul, we have to filter through that's the point. And how does this relate to the point? The way it relates to the point is because Paul struggled with things, yes, on an epic scale, right? But he struggled with things that we struggle with. The same questions, the same doubts, the same issues that we have when we consider sharing Jesus with somebody, Paul had those too. The difference is that Paul, Paul was unwavering. Paul knew his mission he knew what he was being called to do, and he was unwavering. He was uniquely equipped in that he was zealous, and there was nothing that was going to, ter- to deter him. Okay, but he struggled with the same kind of things. To be his witness is what stops us. When we know that that's our calling in Jesus, what stops us from being his witnesses? Is it that you feel unqualified? Okay, Paul was pretty unqualified when he was persecuting Christians to share who Jesus was, but God qualified him. The same God, the same Holy Spirit qualifies you, protects you, and provides you with everything that you need to do what you're called to do. And the only part that he can't provide is that boldness. We provide that. We provide that boldness that says, I know what my mission is, and I will accomplish my mission despite what comes my way. You know, sometimes you think you wouldn't know what to do. The Holy Spirit will lead you. Sometimes you think, I need to see fruit. I've tried this before, and I haven't seen any fruit, so I'm not going to try that again. Paul went back time and time again, nurturing and watering that fruit, caring for that, until finally, finally it was mature and they believed. But Isaiah and Paul both knew that it would be rejected in many cases, but they still said, send me. So worship team, you guys can go ahead and start coming up. I want to ask you, 
Okay, first of all, Acts is just about a group. The whole book of Acts is about a group of ordinary men who were called into an extraordinary circumstance, but no different circumstance than we're called to today. They had different hurdles, but the same hurdles. Different circumstances, but again, the same. They knew what their calling was, and they pursued it. So that's what I want to ask you. How many of us have at one point been zealous for sharing Jesus with people and have been either deterred or beaten down or discouraged from it some way or another? And maybe we want to revisit that. So as we go into communion, we have at the crosses, we have juice and bread. You can serve yourself. Gabe and I will serve you up here. We have wine. And feel free to move about when I'm finished praying and start uh, partaking in communion. But I want you to ask yourself as I pray, and I'm going to pray this over you. If there's a situation where you need to be sent, and are you willing to be sent? Are you willing to say, Lord, here am I, send me? Because there's work to be done in the kingdom, and we are the workers. We are the ones who are to go out and share the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so as I pray, here's what I want you to do. I want you to earnestly seek God's voice and ask him, where would he like to send you? Where would he like to send you? Not, I'm not talking about all over the world, although maybe that's your calling, but maybe it's next door. Maybe it's down the street. Maybe it's the person next to you. Who knows? But the Lord knows. So ask him. And then our part is to be willing to say, here am I, send me. I will be sent. I want to be sent. And so I'm going to ask you to be bold. And as I pray that part, I'm going to ask for a raise of hands. Who is willing to make that vow to God? That Nazarene vow saying, I will for this time and this place. I will vow right now. I want you to send me and I will go. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us, for sending your son to die on the cross for us, to cleanse us and make us whole again, and to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit by which we can accomplish the mission of making Christ known throughout the world. And so, Lord, we want to be your instruments. We want to be your ambassadors in the world. And, Lord, we know that that's what we're here for. Lord, we know we have the same Holy Spirit, but Lord, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we find ourselves worrying more about consequences than our mission. And so Lord, we ask that you just focus us. Show us that place. Show us that mission, that person, that place that you need us to share the knowledge of who Jesus is. Show us that place. And Father, right now, we want to raise our hands in agreement that we vow that when you send us, we will go. So if you want to make that vow right now, we've got the prayer team in the back and I will pray over you from up here. Just raise your hand. Make that vow. Lord, I will go. Here am I. Send me. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the faithfulness of your people, Lord. And I just pray that those who are making that commitment right now, hands raised or not, that, Lord, you would give them everything they need. You would give them the boldness. You would give them the assuredness. You would give them the knowledge that you are standing there with them, and they are 100% in your will because through that comes that boldness. There is no fear. 
There's no fear of rejection. There's no fear of judgment by man. But God, there is only you and the knowledge of your son, Jesus. Lord, let us be your ambassadors to the nations. So Father, we thank you and I thank you for the faithfulness of these people. We pray protection over them. We pray that nothing would come against them as they go about and do your work. And we pray, we pray for great fruit. Whether we see it or not, Lord, we have an assurance that there will be fruit when we are faithful to what you call us to do. So Father God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You go before I know that you've even gone to win my war. You come back with the head of my enemy. You come back and you call it my victory.
There's joy. We thank you for your presence in this place right here and right now. It's a place where I find 
as they go about the rest of their weekend. Father, I pray safety over their week so that they can come back and we can do this again next week because there's nothing more that we want to do than worship your name, God. We love you and we thank you and we bless you. Amen.